seated. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Good? Good. I think most of you are here for the free AC. I'm not going to lie. I walked outside, and it was, like, oppressive before 10 o'clock this morning. And so do your best. Stay cool. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm a pastor here at uh, FB Hanford. We are excited that you are here with us. Um, we're in the middle of a series called The Church, and this is week three of this series. We'll have two more after this. But, uh, but today, we're going to be talking about the idea that the church should love. The church should love. That's kind of where we're going. Uh, so a lot of you have had the, the pleasure of meeting my wife, Sarah. And oftentimes when we talk about this idea of love, we automatically go to the idea of a romantic type of love. And so uh, I was dropping my wife off after a date. Um, she wasn't she wasn't my wife yet, so I wasn't like, hey, we live in separate houses. Um, when we were dating, uh, I dropped my wife off at the end of a date, and uh, I'm staring into her big green eyes, and she looked at me, and she just said, I love you. I know, it was so sweet, but in my mind, I blew it, because I'm like, I'm the dude, I'm supposed to say these things first, right? Like, I have to say, I love you, so I'm doing my best to try to, like, Come, like get back into like the, into like the driver's seat because I was a little bit concerned about this and so like we like moved away from the door that we were next to and like I tried to find like the moon to try to like capture like a romantic a romantic thing and I looked at her as like the moon it's so beautiful and like Sarah Alistina Bergstrom I love you too and I stumbled over my words, and it, like, tried to come out strong. And that's a moment I'm never going to get back. I'm never going to—I blew it, and I'm never going to get it back. And that's okay. Um, but that, that expression of love, while it was a true expression of love, it was a naive one. Right? You guys, most of you who are married can think back to the time when you and your spouse were dating. And think back maybe to the first time that, that you said, I love you, to them. When you realize that I am going to love this person for the rest of my life, this is the person, this is my love. And it's kind of, kind of naive because you haven't seen that person at their worst yet. As a matter of fact, you've probably only seen them at their best, right? You pick them up and they look great and you're like, man, you're so good. You're like, you're, you look fantastic and you're funny and you're charming and you're never in a bad mood. You're never in a bad mood. It's crazy how that works. But now, most of us are, who, who have been married for any amount of time, especially those of us who have been married and then now have kids, have probably, I would bet on the fact, seen our spouse at their worst. And so now when I say I love you to my wife, there is a depth to that love. There is a I am your partner, we are a team, I have your back, you have my back, I don't care about the messy bun that has half fallen out, the fact that you're in sweats and no makeup and a kid is screaming at you right now, all the while you're making baby voices to the kid, so hopefully he'll just take a bite of that spoonful of whatever combination food it is today. There's a depth to that, and as I walk out, I know that, that the love that I have for my wife, the way that I love my wife is deeper now than it was 12 years ago when I said I love you for the first time. I am, I am confident in the fact that I could say I love you more now than I ever have ever in my life. There's a depth 
to that love. It reminds me a bit of a, uh, a sermon that I heard a couple weeks back, um, actually during the royal wedding. Anybody follow the royal wedding? Anybody? Anybody watch the royal wedding? Really? That was at 6 a.m. I wouldn't have gone to my own wedding at 6 a.m. <laughs> so y'all are committed for sure. But 28.2 million people tuned in to watch the royal, or 28.2 million Americans, excuse me, tuned in to watch the royal wedding. And, and in the midst of this wedding, uh, uh, there was uh, the, the pastor, the bishop rather, who, who gave the, uh, the message, message was a man by the name of, uh, of Bishop Curry. And in front of the entire world, he gave a sermon that was all about love. All of it was about love. Twitter loved it. It was blowing up. Love everybody. Love, love this. Love that. And he actually said the word love 58 times in 13 minutes. So for those of you on the stewardship committee, that's 4.46 times per minute. He said the word love. I did my math. I wanted to make sure I was right. Someone, Amy is crunching numbers somewhere right now. You're wrong. I don't care. But the entire world's mind was blown by this message. And one of my actual favorite parts of this message was a part where he quotes the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And he says, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. Love can help and heal when nothing else can. There's power in love to lift up and liberate when nothing else will. There's power in love. There's power and love. And the hard thing about this is in the midst of this culture that we find ourselves is that the word love has been watered down significantly. Even the, the language that we use has watered it down significantly. It no longer has the meaning and intention that it used to have. We have one word that explains the word love. And a lot of you have probably heard this before, but in the Greek they had four. Right? They had four. And so real quick, you don't have to write these down or anything like that. But the first one was eros, and it's where we get the term erotic from. It's an erotic type of love. It's a sexual type of love. Phileo is another one. It's brotherly love. It's where we get the, the, the root of the city Philadelphia from, right? The city of brotherly love. Okay, phileo. Then we have storge, which is a natural type of love. It's a type of love that uh, a mother would have for her child or a dad would have for their kids. It's a natural familial type of love that people just kind of have together. And then the type of love that Christ has called us to, which is almost an impossible type of love, is a love that we call agape. A-G-A-P-E, for those of you trying to keep score, agape. And that is a very, very difficult type of love. As a matter of fact, that word didn't even exist until they started to translate the New Testament. And when they translated the New Testament, they recognized the type of love that was happening in the midst of the early church couldn't be characterized by any of the other three types of love. And so they literally created a word in order to describe what was going on in the midst of the early church. And that word is agape. And this is the type of love that when we talk about the church should love, this is the type of love that we're talking about. An all-encompassing, non-hesitating pedal to the floorboard, zero to 60 type of love. 
This is the type of love that we should be talking about, and it's a hard type of love. John 13, verses 34 and 35, it says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, uh, he tells his disciples here that the world will know who they are by the way that you love one another. Everyone will know that you belong to me because of the way that you act towards each other. And the way you act has everything to do with how much I love you. He tells this to his disciples. He talks to them about this in the upper room at the Last Supper. So Jesus says that that you will, people will know who you are by the way that you love one another. And the way you love one another has everything to do with the way that I love you. This is hours before Jesus is going to go to a cross and die a slow, painful death so that everybody can be reconciled to his Father in heaven. This is the type of love that Jesus is talking about. But we've distorted that English word so much, it's just, it's just a completely watered-down word, right? Like, I could say, I love my cereal, and you would understand what I was saying. And then I would say, I love my wife. Now, hopefully, those are different types of love. <laughs> or else I love cereal way too much for my wife not enough. I don't know which, but hopefully... Those are two different types of love. And because of that, we don't understand anymore what it means when someone comes on stage and says, the church should love. Because we have a distorted view of what love is in our head. Is it a romantic type of love we talked about? We talk about cereal. We talk about our wife. We talk about our kids. We talk about what are we talking about here? Because we have one word to be able to use here. And while it's true that the church should love, some of us thinking here that that means that, that in order for me to love someone else, that, that, that if the church should love, man, that means I should just, I should hold the door open for people. Which don't get me wrong, like hold doors open for people. But it's more than that. It's more than being kind to one another. It's more than saying God bless you when someone sneezes. Or Jesus loves you when you're, when you're leaving and someone says bye and you say, Jesus loves you, God bless, have a good day. It's more than that. It's more than niceties. It's more than being kind. Do all those things that set you apart from other people, but that's not the type of love that we're talking about. It's not just being nice and kind to one another. The type of love we're talking about today is a type of love only Christians know. Did you know that? Here's your first blank. Did you know that Christians are the only ones who know true love? Christians are the only ones who know true love. That blow your mind because when I realized that, I felt like I just wanted to sink down into my chair and be like, I just need to process that for a second. Because in a world that is infatuated with the idea of loving people, you're telling me that Christians are the only ones who know what true love is? I am. Because we have a creator that is love personified. He is love. He is agape love. He doesn't just love. He is love. And the only way that we can know that type of love, the only way we can know true love 
as if, as, as if we are a part of the Creator, as if we are attached to the Creator, if we are His body, the body of Christ. That is the only way for us to know what true love is. And then the only way then that the world can know what true love is, is if we are the hands and feet of that body. If we put true love forth. But it blew my mind. It really did. It blew my mind when I realized that, that Christians were the only ones to know what true love is. But like Solomon says back in Ecclesiastes, right, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. We know this has happened before. The first century Christians were reminded of this truth over and over and over again. Paul even has an entire chapter in his letter to the church in Corinth that is dedicated to love, to this type of love. And you know the chapter probably because you've been to a wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, and it's flowery and it's lovely, and we're actually going to read it here in just a second. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open, flip open to 1 Corinthians 13 chapter 13. And, and I've, I've done this at weddings. I've talked through 1 Corinthians 13. I've talked about that love is all of these things. And so follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship, that, that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. So hold on. Everybody take a time out because you're repeating these. You're saying these things in your head because you've heard them so many times. I want you to think about the words that I'm saying. Don't just recite it because you know part of it. Okay? Love is patient. Think about patience. Love is kind. Think about kindness. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness, com completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a, a reflection as in a mirror. Then we, will sh then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Here's the thing I want to call your attention to, to this. Okay, because we know that Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. And this church in Corinth, they, they're struggling. They're having a hard time. They're having a hard time even with common courtesy. You know that type of love that I talked about earlier, just being nice to people, opening doors? They're having a hard time even with that. They're staring down at their phones. They're refusing to look people in the eye. They're not giving people the right away when they're driving or anything like that. 
right? I mean, this is the equivalent of what's going on. They're not being even kind to one another. It's not even common courtesy anymore here in the church in Corinth. It was all about themselves. It was all about them succeeding. It was all about them being number one. And then Paul comes in. And this type of love that Paul is defining is the agape, the, the I'll do anything for this person type of love. I mean, verse 5, where it talks about that it isn't self-seeking. That alone would have been a cannon to the chest of anybody who was in the church in Corinth. That it's not self-seeking. It's not about me. Ow, oh, that one hurts. The church is having a hard time opening doors for one another, and Paul tells them that love is the trump card. Love is the only thing that's going to last. Because our prophecies will cease, our tongues will be stilled, our knowledge will pass away, but love, love never fails. And it's easy to read this and assume that the message Paul was trying to get across here is to try harder. But your next fill in the blank. The message of Paul isn't try harder. The message here from Paul to the church of Corinth isn't try harder. Because if, if we were to go back and look at that list and even look at that list in, in 13 in the context of a new relationship that so often preachers put forth into a marriage, man, be, be patient, be kind, don't envy, do all of these things. That list... To, to like a new couple should be completely and totally overwhelming. I mean, think, think about that list. Like, like if you took the words of that preacher, that pastor, the person who married you seriously, and you had 1 Corinthians 13, and you looked at it, and you're like, okay, this is how I'm going to show love, like you would be crippled with anxiety of trying to complete that. Because the bar is set so high, so completely and impossibly high. Like, you always need to be patient. You always need to be kind. Like, it says always in the verse. Always. Not like when you're in a, you're in a good mood or you got eight hours of sleep, right? Like, that's not what it says. It doesn't say, like, when you, when you get eight hours of sleep and you're not hangry, you got to be kind. Hangry is hungry and angry. So, <laughs> for those of you who don't know. That's not what it says. It says always. Always be patient. Always be kind. And even if like, you wake up and you're the good husband or wife that you are, and you, you sit up in bed and you think to yourself, you know what? Today's the day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my shoes on extra tight. I got eight hours of sleep. I'm going to have a little bit of coffee before I talk to my spouse. That way I'm definitely going to be kind. And you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this love thing today. It's going to be perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do agape love today. And so you get through your morning routine, and, you know, you're kind, and you're patient, and you serve your wife or your husband, whatever it may be, and you get out the door, and you start your car, and you start cruising down to work. You're like, man, I, I nailed it. And you're like listening to Caleb on the radio, like singing worship songs. And like you're letting cars pass you, you're like, God bless you, you go. And he can't hear you anyway, but you're still doing the like wave over thing. And then it's like, it's like you're, you're almost to work. You're almost to work. And then all of a sudden someone cuts you off. 
And then you remember that love does not get easily angered. <laughs> there goes the day. I can do whatever I want now, I guess, because <laughs> I, I blew it with love already. Or maybe you had a stellar day. You killed it throughout the day, and you loved your wife so much that you're like, you know what? We're going to go on a date tonight, me and you. Why? Because I love you, baby. And so you're, like, you're getting ready. You make reservations for 7 p.m., and you're like, okay, honey, we got to leave at 6.30. 6.30 is when we have to be out the door. Some of you are laughing because you know where I'm going with this. And 6.45 rolls around, and you're like, okay, like if, we, like if we just get there on fumes and don't stop for gas, like maybe, maybe they'll let us sneak in the back door and allow us to get those reservations that I put forth. And you go in, and you check on your, your spouse. You should say it, your wife. And uh, she's like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not comfortable with what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> And you're like, oh, man, <laughs> love is patient. Ah, it's patient. <laughs> and those are obviously like extreme, like, like examples that, yeah, we encounter on a daily basis. And, and we have to work through those things and everything like that. But it just goes to show that the message here uh, that, that Paul is putting forth is it, it is a high bar that he is setting. It is an agape type of love that he is setting. And so we oftentimes, we never, ever, ever are going to reach that agape type of love. So I would venture to say that Paul's message to the church in Corinth isn't try harder. Your next blank is Paul's message to the church in Corinth is rely harder. Paul's message to the church in Corinth is rely harder. Paul intended to create a mirror effect, a mirror effect here. The list of love traits wasn't just like a, a, a random collection he added. Paul wanted to show them a mirror to tell them that they don't look like Jesus, but they needed to. That this is what love looks like. This is what true love looks like. Here's a mirror in 1 Corinthians 13. You need to look more like this. Do you look like this? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you not envious? Are you boasting? What does your reflection look like in this mirror? And that's what Paul intended to create here. He didn't suggest some tweaks, but he proposed a, a complete and total overhaul of the way that they encountered the world, the way that they interacted with the world. That's what Paul is putting forth here in 1 Corinthians 13. That it should be completely and totally different than any type of love that you have ever encountered before. That's the way that we should love people. Because like I said, God doesn't do agape, but agape is embodied in him. It is him. God is a creator of love. God is love. It is embodied in him. And only when you accept and receive God's love can you dispense it to others. That's the only time. And that's why I say we're the only ones who know what true love is. Because we're the only ones who currently have a relationship with Jesus. And so if you have a relationship with Jesus, you understand love personified. And when you understand love personified, then you can pour it out to other people. We're the only ones who know what true love is.
Jesus being the only expression of love, then we can recognize what it says in 1 John 4.19. When it says, we love because he first loved who? Us. We love because he first loved us. He loved us so well that it should have been relatively simple for us to have an outpouring of love for others. If we are honest about what this says, about it actually transforming our lives, if we believe what it says in here, then it should be relatively simple for us to look different. It should be relatively simple for us to look different. But like the previous few weeks, this is all easy for us to agree with in theory. It's easy, right? I mean, we go back and we believe in the Bible, right? We talked about that a few weeks back. We believe it's the inerrant word of God. Okay, great, I believe that in theory. And we believe in the fellowship of believers that all of us have a part to play. In theory, yeah, I believe that, absolutely. I'll say my amen and then duck out the back. And the same here today, that we can agree with the fact that God is love in theory. But it isn't about simply agreeing with it. It's about doing it. So let's talk about what love does. Because I think as the church, we get hung up on all the rules a lot of times, all the don'ts, right? Don't kill anybody. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't lie to your mom and dad. Don't, 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 don't. We get caught up in those things. We're playing defense as a church. We're playing defense. We're constantly just trying to not sin. We're playing defense. We're playing defense and we decided the best way to win is to become the best versions of ourselves by simply not doing things. You know how I'm gonna become a better Christian? I'm gonna not do stuff. That's essentially what we, what, what we tend to gravitate towards is I'm going to not do these things. Can you imagine if you showed your wife you loved her by not doing things? <laughs> and it sounds crazy to say that out loud, right? And honestly, like, some of you guys are like, well, actually, that would go a long way. Because if I could not leave my socks and shoes in the middle of the floor when I get home, my wife would probably love me a little bit more. But can you imagine that? Like, if, if, if you decided that, that, like, not drinking straight out of the carton was the best way to show your wife that you loved her? Or not leaving your beard trimmings in the sink was the best way to show your wife that you loved her? That's crazy, and that may, that may help. Like, I'm not saying don't do those things. Like, please, do those things. But it doesn't even make sense. I think you'd be happy for a while because, I mean, let's face it, happy wife, happy life. I think you'd be happy for a while. But simply not doing things that frustrate your wife isn't how you show her you love her. That's not how you show your wife that. Doing things for her that she loves show her how much you love her. Playing with the kids after you get home from an exhausting day at work. Getting on the floor, not collapsing in your recliner. Getting on the floor and playing with your kids. That shows your wife that you love her. Having a hard conversation with someone you both care about. That's how you show your wife that you love her. Taking her out on a date simply because you want to spend time with her and not getting frustrated when she needs to change 15 minutes after you guys need to leave. 
is how you show your wife that you love her. It's the same showing our love for God. It isn't about behavior modification. It's not about not doing things he doesn't want us to do. It's about doing the things that he wants us to do as well. And we're here playing defense. It would be like, just in theory, having Kevin Durant and Steph Curry on the same team. And they're in the championship game, and you, they, and, and you tell them you're their coach, and you're like, all right, Steph, KD, this is what we're going to do. I want you guys to just stay back on defense. Okay? Don't shoot the ball. That's not how we're going to win. You two are going to just stay back on D, and so that way they can't score. And you think, wait, time out. Steph Curry and Kevin Durant are two of the greatest shoot- shooters in the NBA currently, possibly all time. And you're telling me that it's a good idea to say, hey, you know what? Don't shoot the ball. As a matter of fact, if you get it, just pass it to somebody else. Let other people do it. You guys stay back on defense. And that's what we're doing as the church. We're playing defense. We have, we have the greatest news in the history of the world, and we're playing defense with it. We're playing defense. It doesn't make any sense. That's what we're doing with our walk over and over and over again. We think if I can stop lying, I'll be good to go. If I can stop looking at pornography, I'll be good to go. If I can stop drinking in excess, I'll be good to go. If I can stop lying to my wife, I'll be good to go. And on and on and on and on it goes. And that's what we've boiled down our Christian walk to is not doing things. And I'm not saying we're all guilty of this all the time, but really when we think about our relationship with God, so often we just think about, man, I just, I've been struggling lately. And it's never about getting closer to God, it's about not doing things. It doesn't make any sense. All the while, Scripture's telling us to take the example Jesus set forth for us and go love people. Don't just play defense, get on the offensive. And then we'll realize that when we stop just worrying about not sinning and begin to love, then we'll stop doing those things that that we're always trying to stop doing in the first place by going to do stuff. You're like, it sounds great in theory, but show me where that is in the Bible. Deal. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to what? Love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Let me say that again. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You know what the law is? All those rules that you're trying to, to not break. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. They're summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law of the law. What does that mean? If you love, then you will obey the other 613 commandments. That's what that means. If you love, you will obey the other 613 commandments. Jesus boiled them all down to that. Paul boiled them all down to that. Love God and love others. If you do those two things, you'll do the other 613. Doesn't that just feel like a weight off your shoulders? 
Like, wait, hold up, time out. You're telling me that I need to just go love other people well and the rest is gonna take, take care of itself? Yeah, love other people. I dare you to love other people in the same way that it is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Are you gonna fall short? Absolutely, 100% of the time. And that was Paul's point there. You're gonna fall short. But love other people to the best of your ability, that agape love that he talks about. Play offense. Give Steph the ball and let him go. Play offense. We have to define the word. We have to define love. And I would say that love defined is this. It's the giving of yourself for the benefit of someone else at a cost to you. It's not up there. But it's the giving of yourself for the benefit of someone else at a cost to you. That's agape love. That's the love that Jesus defined the minute he went to the cross for all of us. That's that type of love. We'll close with this. Um, I haven't gotten much into my own personal story or anything like that, and we can save most of it for a later date, but condensed version, um, I began to uh, really follow Jesus at the same point that my dad uh, contracted cancer when I was 17 years old. So he came in, he sat on my bed, told me, hey, they did the biopsy on the lump that was in my back, and, and uh, it's cancer. So as a 17-year-old boy, I was just, you know, wanted to know answers. How can I control the situation? Like, what, Dad, what do we need to do? I'll do anything you need me to do. What do you need me to do? Um, and he just said, just pray. Just pray. And, and, and over the course of the next five, year, five years, for those of you curious, my dad ultimately uh, lost his battle to cancer when I was 22 years old. It was a five-year bout with cancer. Um, and in the midst of those five years, I saw love personified in the closest way that I could have ever seen it, in the way that my mom loved my dad, completely and totally selflessly. Short nights, short night, or no, no sleepless nights, rather, trying to figure out how to get my dad up and down out of the chair. We never had hospice care. She took care of him until the very end of his life when he died in our home. It was love completely and totally personified. My mom stopped going to work. She stopped her social interactions with her friends. She was completely and totally dedicated to the care of my father for those last five years of his life. But the work my mom did had nothing to do with who she was. My mom's a great lady. She's fantastic, and I think she'll probably listen to this online, so I love you, Mom. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with who she is. It has everything to do with whose she is. My mom knew that if she was going to do this, she had to be completely and totally focused and dedicated on her walk with God. And so every morning when I was there, when I would wake up in the morning, she was sitting there in our den with her Bible open, journaling, fervently writing notes as quickly as she possibly can and just getting into the word of God. Because if anything was going to sustain her, it was God. And as she was connected to him, the outpouring of love that she had was unmistakable. It's the only type of love, it's the only type of true love that this world has ever known, is the love of Christ for us and then that flowing out of us into the people that we're around.
just doesn't have like like love just doesn't happen apart from our complete and total reliance on God as our Savior. And when we get into the Word, when we lean on the fellowship, then we can go on offense. Then we can begin to love well because they will know we are Christians. They will know we are God's disciples by the way that we love each other, by the way that we love one another. And we can't be the church, this is your next blank, we can't be the church without expressing God's love to others. We can't be the church without expressing God's love to others. So, imagine what the world would look like if the church got serious about showing what true love actually looks like. With the self-sacrificing, zero to 60, pedal to the floorboard, I will drop everything I need to drop in order to show you real love. What if the church got serious about loving in that way? If rather than ignore people we see in our commute on the way in, we roll down our window, get their Starbucks order, go grab them some and bring it back to them. And even drink your coffee alongside of them. But I'll be late for work, yeah. Self-sacrifice is tough. People might think less of me. Yeah, self-sacrifice is tough. But that's the type of love that we're talking about. Or, or, or if we had a hard conversation with a fellow believer who's living in such a way that is unbecoming to Christ. Well, what if, what if our relationship kind of gets a little unstable because of that? Yeah. Jesus really wasn't about the status quo either, though. Self-sacrifice is, is tough. Or if we knew someone who had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving because their spouse passed away. You say, hey, come, let me pick you up. Come to our table. Enjoy my family. Don't talk to Uncle John, but enjoy the rest of them. <laughs> for any Johns in here who are uncles, I'm not sorry. Um, but what if, what if it looked like that? You fill in the blank because the opportunities are endless. Whatever it is, like however it is that you feel like you need to love other people in the same way that 1 Corinthians 13 outlines, however it is that you are going to love them, do it. Because it's easy to agree with all of this in theory. Man, that sounds great. Did you hear what the pastor said today about loving people? Man, he was right on. That's great. I'm glad you agree. Now do it. Now do it, because the opportunities are endless, like I said, because all of those things are going to pass away, but what's going to remain? Love. Love is going to remain. So this week, love someone sacrificially. I don't know who that is in your life that you need to love sacrificially, but that's your challenge this week, is to love somebody sacrificially. And more specifically, how, like, how are you loving this week that shows other people that you are deeply rooted in your faith to God? Because it's not just about love. You can't just love people and expect them to know who Jesus is. It's love in the name of Christ. It's love in the name of Christ because we can't express God's love without God. And that's your last blank. We can't express God's love without God. And now we've come full circle because Jesus tells us in the book of John, love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning, and thank you for, uh, for love. And God, even in a, uh, in a message that's difficult for me, because I know I fall woefully short on a regular basis, that I have my bouts with cynicism and get frustrated, and I'm not patient, and I'm not kind, and I do all of those things, Father, that, 
that, that you tell us, that Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians 13, that if you want to love somebody, love in this way, and I fall short every single day. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal to me in that mirror that you have set forth in that, that chapter of that book, you would reveal to me the things that I need to work on in order to love better. And I pray the same thing for each of us here today. That you would make, make that mirror obvious to them. So in the areas in their life where they are falling short, they would recognize that they don't just need to try harder. They don't just need to try to be more patient, Father. They need to get more connected to you. And as we're connected to you, as we begin to love other people, that the rest of those things are going to fall into place, as you tell us in Romans chapter 13. That if we love God and love us, we love you and love others, Father, the rest of those things are going to fall into place. And Father, for those people who may be in here today who don't yet have a relationship with you, who this idea of love um, is almost a, a, a strange idea, this idea of loving being a, being a verb of doing things for people, sacrificing of ourselves for others in the same way that your son did. Father, I pray that if anybody doesn't yet know you, doesn't yet know your son and what he did on the cross, Father, I pray that they would just pray along with me right now, eyes closed, head bowed, that they would A, admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, as we all are. Romans is very clear about that, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. They would B, believe that you loved us enough, that, that your love was personified in your Son who came and died on the cross for every single one of us so then we could spend eternity with you and let other people on earth know that you're our Savior and that we, we choose to follow you by loving people, by loving in the same way that you loved us, that, that, that ultimately people know we are Christians by the way that we love one another. So, Father, I pray that we would choose to love one another in a greater capacity every single day. Father, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for him showing us how to love first and how to love best. That's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys. Stay cool. Go inside. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.